Hi, everyone. Welcome to the season finale of Black Ant, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this special season one finale, we're dedicating the entire episode to a discussion with our mom, Nancy Perkins. Before we get into our conversation with our mom, Nancy, I think it's important for our listeners to know that a few things. First and foremost, our mom is white. We are biracial, and she, we often talk about the ways in which white supremacy and the framework of white supremacy applies to us as half-white people. She is our white parent um, and has raised us as a single mother since 1998. Um, she, to me, embodies what a woke white person should be in terms of her own education about the racial history and realities of our country. Our mom moved from Pennsylvania to Jackson, Mississippi. She then married a black man and had three black kids. Since then, she's dedicated her life to educating herself and anyone around her about racism in this country. Legit anyone. It's like annoying at this point. Yeah, (laughs) no, no, it's great. She... (laughs) talks to any and everyone about race and racism. And when we say, when you hear people say there are folks that make everything about race, my, my mom is one of those people that comes to mind when I hear that. So instead of us telling you all about her background, we'll let you hear it straight from the source. Hi, Mom. Hi, April and Jonathan. <laughs> We're so excited to have you here. This is going to be so much fun. I know. <laughs> I'm so excited, too. I'm... So there's deep within me. Here I go already. Oh yeah, God. no, gosh, these kids are already starting crying. Okay, just there we go. Just get the tissue. So there's this welling up of pride that I am talking to two of my children about me and my life that you want to hear it, that you want to include me in what it is that you're doing is so very honoring and um, it just, yes, it gives me just a very deep sense of fulfillment. And I'm I just start crying now. Yeah. <laughs> See, no, I'm crying. Right, cool. like one minute in. Um, <laughs> no, Mom, we, like, I feel like we are, uh, whenever we talk to people about the work that April and I are doing or our history or our background, I, I don't know about you, April, but I routinely and consistently um mention you a mom um and and people want are so curious to know who this person could be that um that had this history and and sort of was a part of our sort of complicated history and and complex history um and produce these children that have these opinions who are so amazing children the way that yeah sure amazing children yeah um but mom yeah we wanted to talk to you about you know your history and your you know your life up until you know when you met dad and then raising us and then where you are now and how the things you sort of witnessed throughout your life and and what got us here to be uh you know these this family that cares about race so much and um and are trying to do as much as we can to to dismantle white supremacy. We, you, you were a big part of that and continue to be. And, um, 
and you're white and that is so weird so yeah that is so striking <laughs> to so many people because um white people i mean you know white people just don't care about race for the most part it's not a thing that is um that is a part of their lives a way that race is a part of your life intentionally so um and so yeah. that's so we be. we want to talk about your journey with racism okay. as a white woman as simple as that okay. i think that's a much more um, concise Nice way to say what I just said. Yeah, it is. Um, so to start, I think, I think it would be great to give our listeners um, a, a summary of your uh, your background. Where okay. were you born? How did you grow up? What's your family like? Um, and what led you to Mississippi? Okay. Okay. Well, um, I'm the fifth child of seven, uh, the fifth girl. And um, my father is, it was a Mennonite pastor and bishop, um, Mennonite being very conservative, um, um, yes, Bible-following, legalistic upbringing church. Um, so um, we grew up in so church is, all the is time. Is that like Amish, Mom? Uh, no, well, it's so Amish are a break off of Mennonite, and they are more conservative yet. So we draw, we we grew up in the city. We lived in a regular house with electricity. We had cars, and all of that. We had distinctive dress as girls. Um, when we became members of the church, we had to dress differently. We wore a, a head covering, and um, my mom made all of our clothes, which were not. Stylish. They were neatly made, but not stylish. Um, and only and dresses so, for the girls and skirts, only right? dresses, only dresses. And we were very had very strict upbringing. And the covering, um, the thing that goes on your head was like just yes. to, to go on the sort of top of your head, like a, yeah, almost like the same. Hair. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yes, over your hair. It was based on the scripture in First Corinthians chapter eleven that said sure. a woman should have her head covered, and her hair should not be cut. So that was. One literal translation that the Mennonite Church took out of Scripture and said, "This we believe." So we had to practice that. So I was in um, eighth grade, I believe, when I quote accepted Christ, which in the Mennonite Church equaled joining the church. So okay. it was over. A, yeah, so it was over a Christmas break. So when I went back to school, I then wore a covering. Oh, man. Um, I was in public school. We were in public school. Oh, my gosh. With, yes, with no – we were the only Mennonite family. And um, what? where was this one? That school. And Oh, I'm so sorry. So it was no, in Redding, Redding, Pennsylvania, um, which is in Berks County, adjacent to Lancaster County, which is famously known for Mennonite and Amish. Mm. Um, and so I would just throw in there that we were odd because – we lived in the city, and we went to public school. Most of our peers, Mennonite peers, went to Mennonite school and lived rural. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that marked us as a bit different. We didn't fit in with the run-of-the-mill Mennonite young people. Freaks. Um, I was say, it's freak yeah. a term you would use? <laughs> it was very, it was. It was, well, sure it was traumatic for you guys yeah. as kids. It was. Some some of my sisters blended in, not they didn't blend, but they were able to overcome that and and have more friends at school. Exactly. I was. I became very introverted and I was just scared of everybody and uh, mm. didn't want to be pointed out, didn't want to have my attention drawn to me. 
Um, and so I sort of crept through school um, yes. until I went to, to 11th and 12th grade. We went, my parents sent us to a Mennonite school for 11th grade and 12th grade, um, where, in, interestingly enough, there was still a pecking order in terms of conservatism, and we were still at the bottom. And that, <laughs> much. And so, that Mennonite yeah. school was in Lancaster, right? It was in Lancaster, yes. Yeah. And we lived there during the week. It was a boarding school. Uh, so, yeah. So I did have more friends there, though. But uh, still, it was still, I never dated. I never got asked on a date. Um, you know, it, I was never a part of that group because partly because we were so conservative and partly because I wasn't all that attractive you because were, of the no, way and, we had to well, dress. And, and you so were also forth, introverted. You know? also, so you weren't putting yourself yeah, out yeah. there to meet people either. Right, right. So after I graduated from high school, one of the other interesting things about my parents, even though we were conservative, is that they did not encourage us to go to college, but they did encourage us to leave home and do what is called what was called then Mennonite voluntary service. So it was begun as an alternate service to going into the military. And then after the draft, it was continued as voluntary service. So um, you could sign up and give you know months or years to the church in service somewhere away from home. I never knew it was in. I never knew that it was in as opposed to the military. In the military. I did not yes, know that's that. That's how it began. That's how it began. Yes. Yeah. Huh. It was called alternative alternative service when it first began. Like my dad was in that instead hmm. of going into the military. Yeah. So being Mennonite was not in my. The way we had to look was not something that I wanted to do. So it was sort of like looking for a way to get away so that I could look different. So in 1975, I believe, um, I decided I also wanted to go to voluntary service. And I went to Nicaragua. I signed up for two and a half years. Um, I signed up for three years. I was in Nicaragua for two and a half years because as I was there is when the revolution started. Um, and so with the Sandinistas and Somoza being overthrown, they made the volunteers leave the country because of the revolution, because it was they felt like it could be dangerous for us mm, as Americans yeah. being there. Okay. When I came home, um, I lived at home for a year with my mom and dad. Um, while I was in Nicaragua, I changed, okay? I stopped wearing a covering. I, I did not cut my hair, but I wore it down, what we called, not up in a bun. Gasp. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I know, right? And I dressed differently. I actually started did wearing... Did you wear pants? Jeans. Blue oh, my gosh. Yes. yes. Yeah. So when I came back home... There was just no way I was going to settle back into where I had left, what I had left behind. So um, I was at home for a year, and my sister, my youngest sister, was in Mississippi under Mennonite Voluntary Service. She was working in youth work in a black neighborhood. I decided I would like to go there, too. And so I contacted the Voluntary Service organization. They gave me a six-month assignment, which would take me to the end of my sister's assignment. So 
um, that we would be there together for six months. And so I went to Jackson, Mississippi. Um, we were in a very poor neighborhood. Um, a and little how old Mennonite church. I was 27. Oh my gosh. So you're my age now yeah, doing this. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was, you know, it was just, it was my, my feeling when I first got there was that I was in a third world country. Wow. That's how weird it felt. It was well, so. And you had poor. just come from one too, so, Nicaragua. Yes. Yes. And so Mississippi, Jackson was like being in another country from being in Pennsylvania. What do you mean I by that? Never, well, I had never been around so many black people. Uh, it, it took me quite a while to be able to understand a conversation. I, it, it was funny sometimes. You I, mean just because of the way that the, people talk? That the, yes. The Southern plus black. Um, right. Yeah, black, black English. Black, yeah. black English. Yeah. It's been so, called a number um, of things, but yeah. And I think now the proper yeah. term is black English. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Dorcas and I, my sister Dorcas and I, we had a lot of fun. We were young and there was a, a basketball court in our backyard, which the point was to encourage people to come and play, you know, and, and stay off the street and that sort of thing. And so we had young people in our house. We actually got in trouble for being too welcoming, I guess you would say. Hmm. Um, yeah, we had we just had too many pe- people, too many people in our house that didn't <laughs> live there. And who got in trouble um, by who? By the powers that be. So the 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 man and wife and his family who who over were overseers of the Mennonite church there. Um, they so the church met in the same house where we lived. Oh wow! And so they they were there a lot, and so they were very uncomfortable with our freedom in interacting with the young people that we were with. And probably what they um, took as like shenanigans, like yeah, you know, yeah. I'm sure that, that they like, thought you know. there were shenanigans. I'm sure they thought sure. that. So, and maybe there were a little bit of shenanigans. <laughs> but anyway, That's we, um, yeah. So we we so we lasted our six months, and there was just no way we were going to stay at that church. Um, so we had visited Voice of Calvary Fellowship, which was in West Jackson. We were more in. Uh, Northwest Jackson. Um, And so we started visiting there. It was an interracial, interdenominational church that was started by John Perkins, who at that time was well-known in black evangelical circles, as well as some white evangelical circles for his his biblical teaching— and his community development theories and his activism. Now, when I say well known, you know, in back in that would have been in eighty uh, one. That was when I was there. He had been in Jackson long before that. But you know how white people, white institutions, love to welcome in someone black and have them speak and be like, oh, ah. You token. know, this man is so amazing. Yeah, we have a word and for as, that. Yes. Okay, so as a result of his ministry, he started a ministry there in Jackson. White people came to work in that ministry, Voice of Calvary Ministries. 
So at Voice of Calvary Fellowship, we were a combination. Yeah, it was a church. And we were a combination of these transplanted white people, transplanted from around the country, and black people who lived there. Okay. So, and many of us were in the sort of same age group. So um, we had a great time. It was for me, and it was, it was just an amazing new, um, it's hard for me to even put it in words, to be part of a church that was so radical at that time and in that place. There was nothing like that. Um, and it was a it was an attempt to have fellowship with each other as equals. Um, we had a gospel choir that was a mix of white and black people. We had um, a pastor who was white. Um, we had sort of a pastoral team then that was formed, which uh, came out of some very vigorous discussions and I might say fights um, within the church body that we would have special meetings to say, this is not okay, that all the leadership positions end up being filled by white people. This is not okay. And so it was hard. The reconciliation was really hard won there. It really, it was, but it was so true. You know what I'm saying? It was so mm-hmm. honest because everybody people left. Yeah. People left because they were really sure. upset, you know, with, well, what, are, what is the role of white people? What are we supposed to do? Hold ourselves back. That was unheard of. Right. So, yeah. That's so, so was, remarkable because that is so, we hear that today. So often yeah. Yeah. With the, yeah. Um, yeah. What are supposed to do? It's make like, room right. for black yeah. people? Right. right. What? It's like, yes, hold yourselves back. But anyway, and shut um, up. So in that in that setting, I met Spencer. Um, I Who's that? joined a choir. Oh, I met Spencer is was my <laughs> husband. He was the <laughs> oldest. So he was the oldest son of John Perkins. And I might say he was quite a catch because um, he was about my age and 28, 28, 29, and, um, and he was single. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I have to say that I did not, I was not necessarily drawn to him as some of the young women were. Um, but we sang tenor in the choir. We both did. So That's I hot. stood by him. That's yeah. funny. You stood by your man. <laughs> I'm going to cry. I, did. I stood by him. And, um, and I, on one occasion, and I don't remember exactly this setting, but I was talking about being, having been in Nicaragua. And he, he used that as, a, as like a pickup line for yeah. me. Like, I want to hear more about that, you know. <laughs> Can <laughs> I come over? <laughs> so you come um, over like yeah. right away. Okay, oh, Spence. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, I mean, but you know, yeah. here again, we were older. You know, it wasn't like we were That's just true. teenagers. That's true. That's so. true. You were yeah. 20, yeah. 27, 28. Yeah, but still, that was also the yeah. 80s. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, yeah. So he came then. over, and that was, and from there we went on. And so you're you know, wait. So hold on, mom. Let me just use this straight. So your first uh, <laughs> date was at your house. It was at yeah. So I lived with my sister. Right. Right. And. Yes, we chaperone. We cooked dinner, and um, she did not. (laughs) 
and we cooked dinner though. And he, um, so he, yeah. And so then he and I just spent time talking. And, um, so we very quickly realized that we were drawn to each other and, um, he, we started spending a lot of time together. Um, it, this was oh in the beginning of the summer, so it was like in June when we first started spending time together, and um, we, um, I very quickly let him know. So our, we would talk about Christianity, and um, I I didn't really know much about what they call um, liberation theology. Um, I didn't, which is um, that people's theology comes out of their own experience. Hmm. So it's, uh, I learned about egocentrism and, and ethnocentrism where you, uh, as like, for example, I would approach someone with my version of Christianity out of my experience as the truth. Mm -hmm. So, which is basically what all white people do, <laughs> you know, right. it's like, this is how I believe this is the truth. I shouldn't say all white people, but what we did for, for all white people, people pretty that's much. fine. <laughs> church people, pretty much. It was like, right. this is what we believe because it's the truth. And, and those so are the I, rules, you know, like these are the, right. And I, I remember, I remember at one point saying to him, I don't know if we can be together because I, I'm not sure that you're a Christian. And, um, you know, because it was sort of like, Christianity looks, looked different uh -huh. from yours. Yes, it did. It sounded different. Right. And that will and, be um, very funny in the next like five minutes when you describe yeah. your life with him. Then, um, <laughs> know, before you do that, we're going to take yeah. a break. Um, uh, okay. and when we come back, we're going to talk about you and Spencer and, um, us. And uh, yeah, I was going to say, we're going to get to us at some point <laughs> okay. uh, because right. we I, we're the product of this uh, yes. weird, this, what I, this in my nonsense. mind is a PG rated relationship that you guys have. <laughs> oh, <gosh>. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're back. Um, and we have our very own mother, Nancy Perkins, uh, chatting with us. So, Mom, you were talking about how you just met Spencer, our dad, and your blossoming relationship in Jackson, Mississippi in the 80s. What was the response from your family members, in particular your parents, when dad, when Spencer proposed to you and said, and then married you? got married yeah my parents and my some of my siblings had quote concerns mm. um so there were some things that were said that were very racist as i look back um but um in the end my parents and my family being christian they couldn't say that it was wrong so they're they were concerned i think more than for how it would work. And as everybody's concern is children, what about the children? So, um, meaning your children, they all came, my children, <laughs> yep. they all came to my, to our wedding and, um, my dad and, and Spencer's dad, John Perkins jointly married us, uh, did the marriage ceremony. Um, and I will just say that when Spencer and I took our first trip to Pennsylvania and we stayed with my mom, and dad and my dad and Spencer sat at the breakfast table that first morning 
as I was dutifully helping to clear it off, like I always, you know, <laughs> a good midnight woman with my mother. Yes, with my mother. And so they were having this this biblical conversation. And um, Spencer was saying everything right. And so my mother said, we are so pleased with your husband. Mm. So that was like a big sigh for me because I felt like I was in then. And from then on, Spencer was well-loved by my family. Um, I, I guarantee you that for some of them, they looked at him as different. You know, he's, well, he's black, but he's different. Right. Um, but, but yes, but they were, he was well loved and um, respected by his brothers-in-law and loved by my sisters. So, That's infuriating, um, but precious. Yes. yes, it was precious. Right. So, yeah. Because in their mind, they had heard of the civil rights so, movement down south, yeah. and they were, I mean, the way that the national news media was covering that at the time, right. it they was They probably thought very, it was a Black Panther. I was supposed to, like, or a communist, or like a, something yeah, right. that, was, that wanted to destroy, the, turn the country inside right. out. Right. Yeah, another interesting thing is that when I came first came home after my the beginning of my education about Black people, I, I was very um, obnoxious, I'm sure. I was, I was over the top in my vocalization about how terrible white people were and what had happened, all that had happened with black people. And my family were, um, I was, I was feeling guilt, you know, white guilt. And so I just, oh my gosh. And so they, they didn't know what to do with me, sort of. They were sort of, so annoyed, you know, (laughs) they so annoyed. It's like, just stop, you know, but, and then Spencer came on the scene and he was so much more gentle and accepting than I was. Um, but yeah, but there was that part of me, which, um, you know, eventually I calmed down, but still had that uh, zeal that they needed to know and they needed to see things the way I did. Is it a sort of like, Um, you know, why can't you guys see this? Why don't you care about this the way that I yeah, do? Yeah, it sort of yeah. reminds me of like when someone comes back from their first semester at college or the first year in mm-hmm. college, they're all amped yeah, up and think yes, that they're, you yes, know. Yes. Yeah, they know everything now. Right. Yeah. So we began, Spencer began educating me about race. Um, and very quickly, I realized that while we were close to the same age, we were about a year and two months maybe apart in age. We were in the same, um, gra- you know, class in terms of school, and that what was happening in his life in this parallel universe was unknown by me. It was a, it was incredible that in this same country, these lives were happy. These things were happening that were so incredibly different. And so he began to, you know, break down to me, break, tell me about his life, his story, his history. Um, I very, so something about this, I guess my love for him that was growing and, and my belief in I'm not sure. I just somehow knew that I wanted to know everything about him, about his history, his culture, and I and that it was important for me to know that. And so um, we ended up in um, the in December of 
83. In December of 1982, we got engaged. Um, I had uh, going to Pennsylvania. I went to Pennsylvania for Christmas, and when I came back, he said to me, "I don't want you to leave me again." And so we got, we then got married in June of 1983. Um, so very early on, we began. We spent time watching educational videos. We watched Roots, one and all the whole thing. Roots uh, was a television production that went over many episodes, many weeks, I believe, of um, the story of a young man brought from Africa, Kunta Kinte, and his life in this country and his his progeny, his, the, his children and on to the several generations. And it went on up into, uh, I don't remember. I think it went into the 60s, maybe. As a slave. Uh, because brought there, over as a slave. There, he was brought over from Africa as a slave. Yes. Yes. Um, it's so it's a whole it's 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 the whole story of slavery into Jim Crow. Um, it, and it's just it's very well, well done. As in the prize is a series that was done by PBS, I think, um, that, that also is a story is the story of the black experience in our, our country in this country. Um, very well done. It's a documentary. So Roots is is like historical fiction. Eyes on the Prize is a documentary with actual footage of things. I was most of the time a basket in tears because I just couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe it, that it was, that those things happened to people. I I mean, now it seems like how naive could I have been? But I was, I guess. And uh, anyway, when Spencer and I got married. We would often go to California. That was where his parents lived. And we went over Christmas one year. um, And this was before we had any children. And on Christmas Day, we went to see the movie Cry Freedom, which was about Stephen Biko from South Africa. In that movie, there was a scene where Stephen Biko was laying on the floor of a prison cell, naked. It was, he was on the cement, curled up and there was something about that scene that translated to me into my husband, and I lost it. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I couldn't stop. And I, on the way home, I was crying. And I rem- <laughs> somebody in Spencer's family, one of his sisters, said, you know, what is wrong with you? Right, they're like white and, tears. Like yeah, I couldn't explain. <laughs> I couldn't explain. I couldn't, I didn't. But what I know now is that that was a great breaking happening inside of me. Mm. And I I was broken. I was just broken. And it was like, I'll never be the same. What do you mean by that, Mom? Broken. I I believe that there was within me something that cracked open wide as a white person and said, you let this happen. You're a part of this. And I'm I'm saying that now, you guys, in words that wouldn't even have come to me then. Right. But but I knew that somehow I th- there was that this had to happen for me to love my husband and to move on in my life with a black man as a husband and with a black family. 
and that if I was going to be any good to anybody um, outside of myself and my white race, it I had to be broken. I, since then, I have said, I feel like that is what needs to happen to every white person. I just don't know if that's possible. But it seems like there has to be some kind of deep, grievous awareness of mm. my part in this story. And yeah, and it sounds it, like, I mean, you were seeing dad in that was. movie. And was. it was that meant some of you because you loved him so much. Yes. So it would, I mean, it seems like it would take a white, white people having that same type of relationship, whether romantic or not, but that closeness with a black person to be able to feel what you felt. Because any old stranger on the street, like it doesn't, you don't have that connection, but when it's someone that you can see that you love. And that, you know, tracks well with, you know, one of the themes of this podcast and what we, and obviously that's what, what your two children have come to think that close, that intimate relationships across racial lines are, can be a big motivator, a moral motivator for, you cared about that character in that movie because you saw the person that you loved in him. Um, And if you don't have anybody, wouldn't have seen it that way. Right. And so what happened as a result of that, I think, is that my um, my know-it-allness, my um, need to be right was broken as well. And so that, and especially as it related to black people. So for example, you know, some of Spencer's sisters had an issue with me at first. I was white, Spencer's black, and their brother, their beloved brother was marrying a white person. And instead of fighting them about that, I just listened to them. I, I so, didn't have any kind of justification or any kind of comeback that made it, tried to make it okay. Shout out FTR number four. Just throwing that in there. Which is? <laughs> it's white people's job to listen <laughs> in conversations exactly. with yeah. black people about so, race. This is actually wild mm-hmm. to hear that like uh, the for, sort of formation of uh, our reality racial realities were such a part we're so yeah you know what i'm saying but so we're so yes, formulated yeah. by your experience and you being yeah, our mom yeah yeah um, yeah sorry continue yeah, yeah. thanks yeah so so that i feel like that has affected me and been a part of my life from that day on back to mississippi so spencer and i started a small group um from church and the purpose of our small group, well, a small group, you know, is like a all people that belong to the church, but they meet once a week. Like a Bible study? Um, to, like a Bible study. And what we wanted to do was talk about what we called the hard teachings of Jesus. So we wanted to talk about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talked about loving Uh, going the second mile with people, about giving people your coat if you had to, about if you saw somebody hungry, you should feed them, um, all that sort of thing. And so we wanted to discuss that in the setting of white and black people together. So we handpicked and invited people to our small group who we thought would be serious about having that discussion and who would stay in Jackson. So some white people left, you know, when they would, I don't know, for whatever reason. And we, so we were trying to get people that would stay. Um, and we did this and met and we, um, at one point, 
over. So two years into that, so that would have been like 1985, we dispersed over the holidays and people went to their respective states, you know, for to go home. White people lived, their parents and so forth lived out of state. When we all came back, um, one of the members of our small group, Gloria Lotz, a black woman, who single woman who was part of our group, who had no family, she was very emotional about all of us leaving over the holiday. Um, and she suggested that maybe we should try to find a way to be all be together. And it sort of started the conversation about intentional community, which very quickly escalated to, yes, let's do that. And um, and we found a place. We, did, we ended up moving into community. But right before that, um, in... April of 1986, I had my first child, which was Lame. Jonathan. <laughs> he was born. He was born on my birthday. That sucks. And, um, yeah, all right. That sucks. I'm so, it's yeah. Us, but like, I had to suck in '86. My bad. Yeah, that's on me. And yeah. Plus, I, I ceased to have a birthday after that because it was Jonathan's birthday. Sounds and so better. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So then, so when we moved into community, Jonathan was um, a a little boy, like six, nine months old. Um, And we moved into a big house. And um, I, you know, am not going, I could spend, you know, an hour talking about community. It was, we were white and black people living together. We were rich and poor living together. All of our money from all of our jobs went into a common pot into a common account and bills were paid out of that. And we each got a stipend. Each community member got a stipend. Um, And so my other children in August of 1988 was Jubilee was born. And in April of 1993, April Joy was born. Here we go. Um, Now the story starts. (laughs) So hold on a second. So yes, this sounds culty. Yeah, y'all sound um, really weird. So, I, and I know it wasn't because I lived there and met all these people. But what can you describe to our listeners? You know, what is yes. you know living together? What do you mean you live together yes. with a bunch of different okay. families? Did you have and... like seances in the backyard too? <laughs> right. No. Exactly. Yes. So one of the things that we decided to do, which is unusual for an intentional community, we decided to stay a part of Voice of Calvary Fellowship Church. So that so there right there dispels the cult thing because we were part of a larger group. It was not just us. Right. But we were we were choosing to live together and experience our lives together uh, with the idea that living together you have you're forced to to talk about things to to love each other. One of the first books that we discussed as a community was called Black and White Styles in Conflict, because we very quickly realized that the way we related to each other was very different. And um, so when, yeah, when people say, I don't see color, that is just, that's because they don't know black people then. Yeah, they don't, that's because you don't know black people or you don't know people who are different from you, because there's a difference there and it's a good difference, but it's different. And so that, yeah, so we, um, we had once a week, we tried to have a community meeting where we, we discussed housekeeping type things, but also how do we grow each other? How do we become more spiritual that we wanted to be, 
more spiritual. We felt like living together was putting our spirituality to the test. And um, so it was tested. And it was, I say, I would say that um, living in community was the, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And it was one of the richest things I've ever done. Um, it, I learned to know myself and I became, uh, I, yeah, it was the beginning of, of, of me seeing myself as a, as a judgmental, critical perfectionist. And, um, mm. that had to be, that had to go, that had to be broken down. That could not last. So having children, Spencer and I discussed having children and we decided that we would have, to, we wanted children and that we would try to provide them with a safe, secure environment. We would love them deeply and they would be okay. And, um, and the, I was gonna say, yeah, jokes <laughs> so on then you. We had, yeah, so we had children. <laughs> Each of our children was um, planned, was thought out. We, we, we wanted children. We, and I have to say this, when Spencer knew that his first child was a boy, as we saw on a sonogram, he was so damn excited that it was almost as if you were being born at that time already. He was just so, so excited that his, Jonathan his, Spencer was coming first. Yeah, Right, his oldest so, child will be a son, good. and he is the yeah. oldest son of his father. Yes. Oldest of eight. Yes. So when... One of my first confrontations from Spencer about my own racism was when I had Jubilee. And so I said, before she was even born, um, oh my goodness, I just hope her hair is more like mine. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Great. I know, right? What was yeah, I thinking? Yeah. But I, so I said, that's what I said. I was thinking so that, I, you know, it'll be easier to take care of. And he didn't say anything right away. But, you know, a few days later, he said, you know... I just wanted to say that I that hurt me when you said that because what if her hair is like mine and then what? And I was just deeply, you know, touched and 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 moved by that and asked his forgiveness because I wasn't I wasn't thinking. You weren't even thinking. And it, um, it, it wasn't a little bit about the implications. Of uh, I was just right, and so, but I was so glad that he did that because it helped me then to to be thinking and to be, um, yeah, to be more conscious of my implicit bias. We didn't use those words then, but uh, that's what it was. And um, so, yeah, so on came Jubilee, beautiful. Jubilee with her. We always said she had a joker smile. She has the biggest, widest smile that you've ever seen. And um, and then we, um, for whatever reason, I don't know, waited a little longer. And then we had April Joy. We decided we certainly wanted more than two children. We wanted three. And so we had April Joy. No, you you're were an, welcome. You, you were an way. accident, bro. So sorry you're about welcome. it. No, no accident. No accident <laughs> at all. <laughs> I was wanted, Jonathan. And she was. Because they weren't satisfied. Um, cool. Great. <laughs> and so we made special effort to, we, this was our plan, that we were going to make a special effort to expose our children to black things, to media, um, to black um media productions, to black art, to 
books that ha- black children's books um, in order to compensate for what would naturally come to them as being part white. Um, and so that was our goal. And we were fairly good at doing that. We also, as soon as they were old enough, we were very quick to point out to them um in, in especially in media, uh, in stories, how the good guy was blonde or fair, and the bad guy was dark, uh, and you know, dark-haired or dark-skinned, and so we we from the very beginning made an effort to point out the power of race and racism in their everyday life. So I just want to I'm going to stop you just for a second and do a quick yes. like shout out to everyone who knows the Perkins siblings. Me, Jubilee, and April, our parents were explaining at ages like four and five to us why the hero in the story was blonde and the bad guy was uh, dark colors. Right. And mm-hmm. that's why, like, why we are how we how we are, okay? <laughs> like why like, this Ursula, is why. Scar, Maleficent yeah. are all problematic Yeah, like, for so multiple we, reasons. I'm just saying like, mom, you guys are talking about this stuff like in our childhood. And so yeah. I just... Exactly. How yeah. can we not? Yeah. You know, like okay. Yes. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah. And also trying. You know, we were very Christian, so we were t- we went to Sunday school and church, and you know, trying. And, and at Voice of Calvary, they did make an effort to have people of color be a part of the uh, of the paperwork and the um, things that got sent home with children. You know that stuff so that it was it it was part of their christian upbringing as well so you have okay, all right so you have three when, kids april's in 93 um and spencer and and chris who was one of the other community uh family members husbands spencer and chris had a ministry of reconciliation racial reconciliation they did a magazine they traveled around the country they spoke all over the country and, and book, even they out of the country. They published a book called More Than Equals. And um and that'd they be, were that'd be Chris Rice. Chris Rice, yes. And so they um that was a big part of our community endeavor was that they were able to do that and raise money to support that ministry. Um and um yeah. So that was a big part of, of the at the center of the lives of of Antioch community. Antioch was the name of our community. So in 1997, we had a very big uh, conference in Jackson. It was uh, for college um, leaders and um, college uh, students, but mostly for college administration and leaders and presidents and that sort of thing. And it was about, it was something like college, ethnicity, and Ready Saddle, no, something like that. And it was like 300 people that came from around the country, and we hosted that um, that conference. And during that conference, Spencer had a, a, a very scary episode of passing out um, and was um, rushed to the hospital. He was found to, they couldn't find anything wrong with him and sent him home. Previous to that, he had been playing basketball and ruptured his Achilles tendon, and so he was on crutches. That had happened two weeks previous to that. So um, he, so moving forward from that, whether it was from the exertion of being 
of all his body weight being carried on those crutches, his upper body exertion. Um, he, two days after the conference, he had a massive heart attack while sitting in our, um, our family's sitting room or living room area um, at Antioch. And um, he was not able to be revived by uh, the medics. They took him to the hospital and he, they still were unable to revive him. Um, and he died. He was 44. This was January of 1998. Um, he, um, had just turned 44 earlier that month. So, um, our world as we knew it came to a crashing halt. Um, the children were in school. Um, and yeah, it, our lives were flipped upside down forever. Um, this is, so this is a dumb question. What was that like, mom? Like you, what were your, what was going through your mind when you're in those weeks that followed after dad died in your, in your living space with these three kids I had a lot of people around me. Um, my family all came down and uh, different. My mom and dad stayed for a month. My very, very best friend, Lisa Ware, came. I remember that first night. She came and she slept with me and with all of my kids. We were all in bed together. Um, and it was very, very surreal. There were so many people that came from everywhere and um, I, I pretty much stayed in our space and, um, you know, said hello to people as they came. Um, it, it is just hard for me to even say it was, it was unimaginable that it had happened. And I couldn't believe that God would let it happen to someone like Spencer. Um, and yeah, I, how long had you been married? We had been married for 14 and a half years. And my you children at that point were ages 11, 9, and 4. Um, and so I remember when I first came to the house when the medics were working on Spencer. And I remember just sinking to the floor in our entryway, saying over and over, how can this happen? How can this happen? How can this happen? What will I do? What will I do? And, um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I mean, it, it just, we, I, I gathered my children close. I just wanted my, I wanted you all to be close to me. Um, and yet I wanted you, uh, as I look back, you know, I wanted you to have your lives and yet there was some complications with that. There was April, April, you were four. And I know that you didn't know what was happening. And all I could think was that I needed to keep you close to protect you. And I know we've talked about this, that I know I held you too close, but I didn't know what to do. And I know, um, Jonathan, I came down really hard on you at one point. I felt a need to like exert my, um, well, you know, people say 
to to especially to young men when something happens like now you're the man now and i didn't want you jonathan to ever ever have that burden to carry and um i think i told I don't you, know that, if you, that you i'm, yeah, I was, I'm the, yeah i'm the head of the i'm still the head of our family you don't have to take care of us i'm going to take care of you jonathan and i'm going to be i'm still going to be here remember you um, told me that after dad's funeral because of how many people you witnessed come up to yeah. me and say to me, yeah. well, you're the head of the house now. A you're, you're the man boy. of the house, you know, yeah. Yeah. as yeah. 11, yeah. 12, 11. 11 or 12, okay. but 11 yeah. at that Still. point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, I remember that very vividly and have, have you know, written about that yeah. to myself from my own, because I want to remember it. You just, yeah. 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 One of the things I remember about Jubilee, and she's not a part of this podcast, but I remember that Jubilee was taking ballet lessons and she loved it. And she was so adorable. And she I have a picture of her coming down the big stairs at Antioch in in one of her little outfits and with her hands up in a plie or whatever. Yeah. And uh, when when Spencer died, when her daddy died, she stopped. She, she quit ballet. She wouldn't go back. Mm-hmm. So just those things that happened that um, as, a, as a mother who was now single and had, of course, not having experienced anything like this, I was sort of winging it as, as, as I went on, you know, trying to um, do the right thing, do what was right. And, and so out of that, um, came my decision at the end of that uh, school year um, to go to Pennsylvania. My sister asked us to come. They lived in the country, my second oldest sister, Esther. And so she and her husband came and got us, and we went to their house in Lancaster County out in the country and lived there for the summer. And um, no expectations of me. There was, I, I didn't, all I had to do was be there. And my children, you children, April and Jonathan and Jubilee thrived in that environment. There were babies, animals being born, and there were eggs to gather and grass to cut. And, and a rooster to fight off. A rooster to fight. I was going to say, and just like as, uh, as that is about as as stark of a culture shock as you can experience yeah. as a young child, I will say, yes. coming from yes. Jackson, Mississippi to yeah. rural, rural, rural yeah, where horses and buggies were going by the house. Amish people, yeah. Um, yeah, Amish people. So uh, they had a pool, and so it, it was just idyllic for uh, you guys for this summer to have that um, freedom to just, and yet you were grieving. Um, my brother law loved Louis loved Spencer and he could hardly contain himself watching my children and um, I actually wrote a little essay about my brother's keeper because that's sort of what he became and April I remember him holding you on his lap and playing game after game of sorry with you and um you know, I know he was just doing that because he wanted to do something for Spencer, for Spencer's baby. And um, 
you know, he put Jonathan, he put you on the tractor. Oh, you've got this, Jonathan. You can do this. You know, I Insane. think he was, Stick shift. he was wanting to, <laughs> he was wanting <laughs> to, you know, somehow be an encouragement to you. I think, uh, you know, yeah. he t- Jubilee loved the garden. She loved tomatoes and uncle Louie, can I eat tomato? You can have all the tomatoes you want. And she would sit in the garden and eat tomatoes right out of the garden. So it was just a very, um, a very poignant time for us. And at the end of that summer, I made the decision that we would move to Pennsylvania because that's where my family mostly lived. Um, I, I still believe it was the right, a good decision, not right or wrong, but a good decision. Um, however, it changed the lives of my children drastically. So we'll take a break. And when we come back, uh, you can tell our listeners what Lancaster is like. And we're back. Um, Welcome back, everyone. So, Mom, we have our mother on the episode today. Mom, you were just uh, telling our listeners about um, when dad died in 1998 and how you made the decision to move um, all of us up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to be closer to uh, where your family was at the time. Um, So continue on with that. Uh, What was it like moving to Lancaster from Jackson, Mississippi? Well, in a way, it was a relief for me uh, because I was around my loved ones, my family. Uh, but at the same time, it was hard leaving um, the people that we were close to in Jackson. However, things changed so drastically after Spencer died. Community broke apart. Uh, some Even Voice of Calvary really changed, Voice of Calvary Fellowship. So um, yeah, so we moved um, into a rental house um, in a school district where my children would begin school that fall. And April was, you were starting kindergarten, April. And um, so probably, yeah. So, and Jubilee was going into the fifth grade. And Jonathan, you were starting middle school. Um, so, yeah, that was rough. Um, just quickly, um, April, you know, I went and met with April's teacher, told her what had happened to you, April, about your dad. Um, and she told me later that uh, one of the first days of school, you raised your hand and said, um, "Miss Buckwalter, my dad died." And, oh my um, gosh! <laughs> so you just sort of put it out there. Oh my and gosh! I said, didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. She said, "I'm so sorry, honey." Another thing that happened with you, April, was was that um, you went to the nurse quite a bit. Um, that was in kindergarten and in first grade, I think. And, I remember um, that. Yes, went to the nurse. And a lot of times you said, my chest hurts. And so um, I eventually met with the nurse and also with your teacher. And then I talked with you. And as I remember, I reassured you that I was fine I was not, I was going to be okay and that you were okay as well. And, you know, of course I, you, you speak that because that's what you have to. I was hoping that I would be fine, <laughs> but um, yes. And after that you were better. 
And um, so I think that just having that reassurance was what you needed. Mm. Jubilee, um, you, you know, Jubilee is probably the one who communicates feelings to me the least over the years, and especially at that time. Um, I think she she made a, a friend or two in fifth grade and who she spent time with at their house. Um, and so I think she did okay in fifth grade. Jonathan, you had it the hardest. Um, going into middle school is different is difficult at the be- at best. And um, going into a new school where you had um, a southern accent and you were brown skinned um, was just very hard. And you had a very hard year. And it's really hard for me to think back over that without emotion when I know how you were bullied and picked on and how they seemed clueless. I can get angry just talking about it. Mm-hmm. Get angry. We have that an explicit content rating, so you're good. Clueless. Yeah, they seem clueless how to, t- how to deal with it. Um, and so I met with the guidance counselor and with the teachers, and, and then the guidance counselor said, maybe I should talk to the guy that was bullying you. Maybe I should talk to his parents. It's like, me? Why are they going to believe me? Why don't you talk to them? Mm. And it was just crazy. And I made them promise that, that, ne- that the next year you would not be on the same, quote, team that you had in school with that particular young man. Hmm, that douche. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I so want to name him right now, but I'm not going to because I'm so. trying to be a yeah, better person. To let person. It go. So yeah. let's mm. let that go. Okay. No, I'm not letting so, you go. I hate it. <laughs> so. Yeah. So the school district that you guys got into was majority white. There were, I don't know, was it like 1%, 2% black children maybe? Yeah. And, um, and, and those black children were almost 100% in remedial classes. So it was, um, it put was not there. a good investment. That's what I'm saying. We're put in remedial classes. Right. Um, I, I, so we, when, when I bought a house that following year, I wanted to keep it in that same school district, not because of the, not because it was all white, but because I didn't want them to have to, I didn't want my children to have to change schools again. And to be um, and fair, it is a good, it is a, a quality it a good school. school district in yes. terms of like yes. public schools. Yeah. Yes. And I showed up a lot so that they, the teachers and the administration there knew that my children were not going in remedial classes. Um, and they, of course, didn't need it, but they were, that was not going to happen to my kids. And um, so that, that whole thing of me showing up and I was white. Um, you I was know, gonna say it's because you were white. I, I kept that that kept them on their guard, though, in terms of how they were going to view my children scholastically. And um, all of you did very well in school. You all graduated with great success from um, Manheim Township High School, and uh, the, your teachers loved you all. That was just for certain. Um, and so during those years, I made special effort again to continue our conversations at home about race and about racism. One of the things that I chose to do, which again, was it the right choice? I don't know, but this is what I did is I, well, I began to work for a black pastor in Lancaster, um, Reverend Edward Bailey at the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And in doing so, I decided to attend and then I decided to join. And uh, I, took my children with me. My thought was that this would be a their black 
context in that setting, since their context otherwise was pretty much white. Um, you know, everybody at Bethel loved me, loved my children, loved you all. Um, but it was probably not real successful in terms of um, how you thought about yourselves as black children. I don't know. Um, but, but anyway, we were there for 10 years and um, went most every Sunday. I um, enforced that. So yeah, uh, there was, yeah. there, was no, there was no children's church. There was no Sunday school. So uh, you all, especially you, April, missed out on Bible teaching and Bible stories and that sort of thing uh, that John and you and Jubilee had experienced that more at Voice of Calvary. Um, however... I am a um, very, I, I'm a, I love God. I believe very strongly in our spiritual beings, that we are spiritual beings. And I tried to live that in front of you all, integrated with race and that's its connection to race. Um, so we, yeah, so that's, um, that was my attempt at uh, having you all be a part of a black community as well. Um, the church raised money different times to help um, you children do different things that you wanted to do, take trips and that sort of thing. And that was very lovely. So um, after, uh, so Jonathan graduated and went and went off to Temple. That was our first experience. Um, Jonathan, I remember falling up the step at the, the dorm where <laughs> you were moving in and how that's embarrassed right. you were. Oh, and yes. Right. And, but it was such a, it was such a new experience for me and sort of scary. I just was, I couldn't imagine leaving my 18 year old in, in Philadelphia, but that's what we did. And, um, he did very well. Um, you know, Jonathan, your experience at Temple was our first experience as a family with college. And um, I remember you making trips home and how much you loved being on that campus, being around all that mixture of people, uh, being around black people, and and just being in North Philly. Um, and subsequently then Jubilee. Uh, she ended up going to culinary school in Philadelphia, and then she decided to go back to Jackson. Maybe 2008, yeah, that she decided to go. So when I was in law school. Back. Yeah. Okay. She decided yeah. to go to, to Jackson, Mississippi, to Bellhaven University. It's a small Presbyterian college where Spencer actually graduated from there. And when he died, the, the university gave tuition scholarships to each of my children. Uh, to each of you all. And um, so uh, she decided to go and take creative writing at Bellhaven, and she moved to Jackson. Um, then April, after you graduated, you also decided you wanted to go to Temple and moved to um, Philadelphia. And, um, you know, your story is yours to tell, uh, but that was Temple was quite life changing for you. It was, um, and yes, it was. And your departure from our house on Pleasure Road, which is what the street that we lived on, <laughs> like, it's like um, was <laughs> was um, left me living then by myself there in that house, and um, it. 
so I just need to say that our life on in that house on Pleasure Road was a good life, right, guys? Yeah, I it was mean, good. We had, Mom. we had all of those picnics in the backyard where we had, you know, parties where your friends came. We had the chimenea, you know, where Jonathan, you sat back there with your, mm-hmm. uh, your friends and made fires and smoked cigars or whatever it was and probably yeah whatever it was and, mm-hmm. yeah and um so we just but we had good we, your friends came over a lot and hung out at our house and um i i i always loved that i remember um our cookie baking experience you know your friends would come even after you were no longer there jonathan mm-hmm. your friend mark would come to cookie baking day and um i i loved that so it was a good place and after you left April for Temple, um, you know, some people get really morose and depressed when they have an empty nest. And um, I don't remember that happening to me. Um, I I worked full time, but my evenings and weekends were spent there. I learned to really treasure my time alone. Um, and I began doing a lot of writing and um, just meditation, con- contemplation, just uh, being. And there. you sort of, and, and you you sort of left at some point. Decided that you weren't going to be going to an organized sort of church anymore. Exactly. Um, and That's right. Yeah. Which is it, which yes. is to me one of the most fascinating transformations from you as a Mennonite girl mm-hmm. with your mm-hmm. long dress and your covering in. Yes going to Lancaster Mennonite High School, yeah. LMH, in in Lancaster County, and, and changing from that to yes. this woman yes. who lives in Lancaster yeah. on Pleasure Road after her three black children left for yeah. college and not going to church anymore, yeah. not uh, but being yeah. very, yeah. Yes. Okay, so I, I did leave Bethel for reasons, just different reasons, and um, part of it was just, a general di- disappointment with the church in general, but the also, yeah. And so the Christian church. Yes. And, um, I did go to an Episcopal church briefly on and off, um, just sort of crept in the back and sat and took communion and then left. Um, but after a while it was just, yeah, I just, I just, the big thing to me is that is, is racism. It is race. There is no, denomination that is not that is committed to changing their that I know of to changing their church doctrine um, creed whatever to say historically we have been wrong and we are going to change this so that when you go to church you either go to a white church or a black church that is not okay with me that is not okay with me and some people over the years have said to me, well, you need to be the change you want to see. Oh, that I know that. I know that, that trite saying. I feel like my relationship with God has just evolved into something that is so different. And um, the, the, the institutional church is just, to me, is not God's plan. And so... Um, that sounds so judgmental and pious, but I just, it isn't. It isn't the way yeah. it's supposed to be. And so I choose to not be a part of it. And I'm very quick when anyone asks me where I go to church, I'm very quick to say that 
I, I respond that I do not attend church, but that I love God very deeply. So I, I, I don't want people to think I'm just ungodly. But anyway, um, so a big part of my Sunday mornings were often spent on my front porch, um, mm-hmm. reading or writing or just being. Um, and um, I decided to that I would that I wanted to stay living in that place until you graduated April from college, so that you could come and go as you wanted to from Philadelphia, and that would you still be there. Mm-hmm. Um, then my story moves on to North Carolina. So my sister Maggie uh, and her husband lived in Florida. For, uh, he's from Florida. They retired to North Carolina to a, near a small town called Eden. Um, and I decided I was going to go live with them. That had been part of my long-term plan. It'll be five years mm-hmm. in, in this in next month. Wow. Um, that I moved to North Carolina and I live in the same house with Maggie and her husband. We have our little mini community, which many of some of my family members predicted would not last or work. Um, but they don't know us. They don't know me. And so um, it's working. And we love each other. And um, we do very well here together. And um, yeah, here I am. And um, I am in Podunk. North Carolina, if I may say that on a podcast, um, many of our people that live near us and who I work at the local YMCA, many of the people I interact with are, um, can I say this? They are Trump supporters. And um, wow. I mean, we Yeah, you're in bumfuck North Carolina. You just had a Klan rally there. I, so. I mean, I wrote, I, I was looking over the, some of the poems I wrote and I wrote one said, I feel like I live in Hicksville, and um, that I, that sounds mean. So I'm I'm a hick myself, probably. But I, I mean that to say these people are very un not not, not necessarily uneducated, but they're unex, inexperienced with any kind of life outside of their small town. Mm. And um, so it's just a very narrow worldview, which leads to some very frustrating interesting conversations but you get um, a lot of looks in your uh black lives black lives matter oh, t-shirt yes when i wear my <laughs> black lives matter t-shirt i either get looks of disgust or occasionally someone will smile at me and say i like your t-shirt so um yeah there's that mom but yeah yes so i want to sort of start to switch gears from your history to now what you think about race. What do you think about race and racism? You have a, your, your, your children, two of your children host a podcast where we've called all white people in America racist um, because of their whiteness. And, and that's because of the relationship whiteness has to other races in this country. Um, You, you're white. So how, how, how is, talk about that. Yeah, I have to say, you know, that um, Spencer, from time to time, was known to say, I hate white people. 
So, um, that's you know, I I, <laughs> I'm familiar with that sense. sentiment. Yes. Okay, great, great. Um, so I, I, I hold, like hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm not saying I hate white people or anything close to it. I'm saying all oh, white people are racist. And that right, is not. I'm saying, right. He said he right. hates white people because they're all white people. Right. It would be, it would be in response to something right. like the OJ trial or something like right. that, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, but I and I want to say to you both of you that I have learned so much from my children, and to anybody that's listening to this, that my children, over the latter years since you were our adults, have fed me information, fed me books and articles and podcasts, and I listen and read everyone, and I have learned so much. I continue to learn. And that is my job as a white person is to continue this process because I don't, I don't escape the label of racist. I'm a part of it too. I like to say I'm in recovery if that's a thing, Hmm. but I, I just, I believe that every now and then I'll hear myself say something. Um, I did April. I believe I just said something to you not long ago and you Maybe I'll think of it and then call her out, April. Yeah, I don't remember, but (laughs) yes, she did. She did. Um, And so, um, oh, I know. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I I was talking about moving to Philadelphia to live with April, and we were talking about to buy a house that needs to be renovated or one that's renovated. I said, well, if we buy one that's not renovated, maybe you know we could contact like there's Amish people that own properties there, and you know they would renovate and they do really good work. Right. And April's like, Mom. Pump the brakes. It's like Amish people. Mom, (laughs) anybody that we have to come and do anything at our house is going to be black. I'm not buying some Amish person to South Philadelphia to work on my house. Right, right. See, there's my, there's, there's, there it is. Your default was to what you were comfortable with. Right. Yes, Amish people do do great construction. We know that. Right. So do black contractors. Definitely. But but that's what first came into me. Right. And so I was, and so Mm -hmm. I'm glad that April said that because it's like, uh, of course, of course we will. The same as your hair comment about Jubilee. Yes. 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 And that's how many years ago, you know, Yes, a great example yes. of how it is continued yes. is a continued sort of process. Yes. And so so the thing of being said of, of saying that I'm racist is that I have come to know that that is not that does not define me completely. It's part though of my legacy as a white person. It's part of what I come from. And so to if I don't if I don't agree and own it, I'll be I won't learn. I won't. I'll be closed. I, I'll be arrogant and I and and white. And so, um, it's it's not a it's it's not hard for me to hear that that all white people are racist. I believe that too, and I've I've repeated that myself to other people, and they look at me with like raised eyebrows, like what you're saying that. But yeah, so this is an ongoing process for me, and. I share that with my sister who I live with, with Maggie. And so she is just such an advocate and such an, um, she's so outspoken um, in, in racial issues with anyone. She doesn't care who it is. And so that, you know, I love that. 
And um, there are other of my family members who are not so much, who may who who, who haven't gotten to the place of listening. And um, so I I see that as a continued role in my in my family, and in life as in life in general. I do in my growth as a, a, in my relationship with God. I love God. And because of that, because of his love for me, I love people. And and so remembering that helps me to, to speak to people without um, that uh, attacking um, overtone. For me, that's important because I want to maintain the connection to people. Um, and that's, I'm 67 years old. So that, that's where I've gotten to at this point in my life. So mom, we're, um, going to ask you a question that we ask, uh, all our guests on the show and it's a doozy. Oh, great. When we think about, um, you know, the perfect world of ending racism and living in a world without, that doesn't involve, that doesn't function around racism, and we think about white people. What, in your opinion, do white people need to do to get us closer to that goal? It's a big one, but but what are what are the most important things? Yes, it's a doozy. I I feel like um, I have seen people try to have. Uh, you know, tr- cross racial relationships. I'm not, I'm talking, I'm not talking about romantic relationships and they have like just parted ways because it's just so hard. Um, you know, within our community at Antioch and within the voice of Calvary fellowship church, it was so, so hard, but to me, it, it's the, the, the work of white people is to, this sounds so hard, but to submit, to get off your pedestal, to stop believing that everything that you do is the only way, the right way, that everything that you think and believe is the only way, the right way. But to, 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 you see, within a country such as ours, where, where the ultimate is, is, is success and wealth, relationships aren't that important. And so if, if, if you're not going to help me to get, be more successful or be more powerful or be, make more money, what it, what's driving it? What, what's going to make us want to be in a relationship? So, and so having said that, and that sounds hopeless. I feel like there are, there are people that are willing to do that. Um, to, there are white people who are willing to learn and be open and, Look at it. I, I feel like you have to look at it as a life's commitment, a lifelong commitment, not something that next week I'm going to make a black friend <laughs> and then we're going to talk. And um, so that it's a it's a commitment to the rest of your life. It's a commitment to open your heart to other to stop being so damn scared or worried about what you're going to have to give up or what you're going to have to do, but to just open yourself up to something besides yourself, besides your people, besides your tribe, 
beside your denomination, beside your whatever, and say, I want to experience something else. I want to experience some other people. I think you have to be committed to showing up in places where it counts for justice, which, you know, and white people usually don't have too much trouble doing that. But I think that's important to show up, to resist and to show up to um, demonstrations and that sort of thing. But, um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't have a pat answer, children. Um, I no, think, this is this is your answer. This is exactly yeah, what yeah. you've done. The answer is, is that it's hard work. Be willing to, to do some hard work. And um, the, the richness is incomparable and incredible. Mom, so we just thought this was important to give your sort of story to our, which is partially our story, to our listeners because it just, so much of what you said, it just rings so accurate for the, you know, and applicable to our April, my and Jubilee's opinions about race and experiences with race are sort of all informed by these same sort of principles that you've sort of um, laid out here. And it's just really, I, we didn't, we didn't know that that would necessarily be the case when you talked mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. when you agreed to do this, but of course it is. And um, so we just. Can I just say, I just wanted to say that I feel like your dad, that I'm doing what he would want. And I also feel like I'm, I, I don't want to betray my children by being anything more than for them. I want to be for you in the deepest way possible. And I want to be true to my commitment to Spencer in that we were going to raise our children to be strong and healthy individuals. And so I'm so proud of you all. I am so incredibly proud of who you are. And I know he would be too. This episode of Black Anne was written and produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins, and was edited by me. Our theme music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's the number five, fifthchildmusic.com. Black Anne is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, tell your friends about us. It really helps us out. Music.